Hello and welcome to the BMB podcast. I'm Chris Miller here today with Stephanie Petrello, who's the editor of BMB Russia, talking today about uh, the latest in Russian politics and economics. But let's start, Stephanie, if we can, with the situation surrounding COVID. What's the latest news uh, from Russia with regard to the act, the epidemic? Hi, Chris. Um, absolutely. So, in terms of COVID, there actually appears to be some good news coming out of Russia. Um, which is that COVID continues to recede. So the recovery in Russia has definitely slowed down as people have begun to resume their lives. Um, and the dynamic between Moscow and the regions has changed somewhat. So for a while, cases were declining in Moscow much faster than they were in the regions. Um, and since Moscow had its grand reopening, um, that that progress has stagnated somewhat. And in fact, cases have started increasing slightly, um, but they've been hovering around about 600 a day, um, which is you know, a positive sign that after the country sort of got rid of all their quarantine measures and um, held the Victory Day celebrations and then constitutional reform vote, that there hasn't been any really serious spike in cases. So recovery is slow, but there is still progress when you look at the country as a whole. Um, and overall, that's a good sign that today there are about 5,000 new cases a day, um, which is much further, you know, much lower than a few months ago when they were peaking at about 11,000 new cases per day. So they, they've managed to reopen the economy without seeing a, a, a really serious spike in uh, COVID cases. But how's the economy doing now? The restrictions are gone. What's the, the latest in terms of the macro data? Yeah, so unfortunately, whereas there's there's good news in terms of COVID, um, Russia's economy remains in a deep recession still. And that's a, you know somewhat to be expected considering what's going on in the, the global economy right now. But there are some, some macroeconomic indicators that don't paint the prettiest picture. So in June, for instance, industrial production fell by nearly 10% compared to um, June of 2019. And that's the second month in a row that industrial production has fallen by nearly 10%, which is pretty staggering. There's anecdotal evidence as well that, you know, sectors of the economy are still struggling. So for instance, the, the Russian Association of Shopping Centers has warned that if the government doesn't step in and start providing support for malls around the country, that approximately a quarter of them may have to close because consumer demand just hasn't hasn't picked back up to pre-COVID levels. Um, and then there's also evidence that, for instance, entrepreneurs are really suffering. Um, so in the second quarter of 2020, incomes that come from people who own their own businesses, you know, fell by half. So that's a pretty big drop and obviously will have a, a big effect on the lives of ordinary Russians. So in terms of what this does mean for ordinary Russians, I know that these are, you know, macroeconomic indicators. Sometimes it's hard to know what that means in practice. Um, unemployment continues to rise. So more and more people are losing their jobs. Um, as of June, unemployment stood at about 6.2% of the population. Um, and the biggest thing is that incomes of ordinary Russians are dropping really dramatically. So in the second quarter of this year, real disposable incomes, incomes fell by 8% compared to the second quarter of 2019. And this is the worst quarterly decline since Russia's 1998 financial crisis, um, which just goes to show how much, what, what an effect COVID is having on the lives of the population. Um, and whereas that's to be expected, given that you know, the entire global economy is struggling because of COVID, um, to make matters worse, this big decline does come after almost a decade of stagnating incomes. 
So even before COVID, um, Russians, in terms of the money that they were taking home every day, were, were no better off than they were in 2012. Um, and so this will mean that declining incomes in Russia will, will hurt more than they would elsewhere in the world, where there has been growth over the past decade. So this then brings up the question, what's the Russian government doing about it? Putin has passed the constitutional vote from last month. Uh, the agenda, at least in terms of domestic politics, is relatively clear for the rest of the year. Uh, what's on the government's agenda in terms of fixing the economy? Yeah, so it appears that reviving the economy and boosting living standards is actually not the government's priority right now. So before the, the plebiscite on constitutional change, um, the government was implementing some populist anti-crisis measures. So Putin gave a series of announcements where he would say, you know, for, for a couple months in a row, he gave out a 10,000 ruble lump sum payment for all parents. They would get 10,000 rubles for each child in their household. Um, there are also additional um, payments per month for out-of-work parents. There were increased unemployment benefits. So these were handouts that were going directly into Russians' pockets. Um, However, since constitutional reform has passed, um, these addresses announcing new anti-crisis measures have stopped. Um, nothing has really been announced since the beginning of, of July. And the official rhetoric from the government about the economy has also shifted. So there are two key points here that, that demonstrate how the, the government is approaching the economy. The first is that they delayed the national projects. So the national projects stemmed from Putin's 2018 May decrees, and they formed the backbone of Russia's economic strategy from 2019 to 2024. So they included a series of goals, such as um, achieving economic growth that's above the global average, becoming a top five global economy, um, having the poverty rate, extending life expectancy. Um, and the government is now saying that whereas we were trying to accomplish these goals by 2024, we're actually going to push this an extra six years because realistically, there's no way we can get this done until 2030. Um, and on top of postponing these, the implementation of these goals, they've also gotten rid of a couple, a couple key targets. So the biggest one being that the, the new decree that Putin signed about Russia's economic development strategy, which canceled the previous national projects, um, that no longer aims to have Russia become a top five global economy. Um, so basically, the Russian elite are essentially admitting that, that these national development goals are unrealistic. And this isn't surprising because even before COVID, the implementation of these projects lagged really considerably. Um, but it is a very serious change in tone, whereas before COVID, the government was, you know, the, the Kremlin was pushing the government saying, we need to implement these, we need to boost living standards, we need to, we need to get this stuff done so people, you know, have more fulfilling lives in Russia. Um, now they're saying, like, we're not, this is, this is so unfeasible that we're, we're just going to push it. Um, so that's a, that's a pretty big change in rhetoric. Um, and then the second thing is that the Ministry of Finance has actually started talking about implementing austerity. So just a couple of weeks ago, they submitted a proposal to the prime minister's office that 
suggested cutting budget expenditure nearly across the board, except for on a few protected line items, by 10% over the next three years. Um, and on top of that, they also proposed cutting military expenditure by 5% over the next three years. And obviously, the proposal to cut military spending is really symbolic, considering that in countries like Russia and the United States, that's, that's sort of an untouchable line item on the budget. Um, and again, this represents a really big change from the rhetoric at the beginning of the pandemic. So early on, the Ministry of Finance was adamant that they were not considering a budget sequestration despite declining revenue, that they were going to continue spending to, to try to soften the effects of the pandemic. And now that this constitutional reform vote has passed, um, you know, the tone has changed somewhat and they're saying, okay, we need to, we need to tighten the purse string, strings a little bit um, and, you know, secure the budget in the next few years. So what's the logic for tightening the purse strings? We, you look at the Russian government's uh, fiscal position, it looks pretty good. What's the incentive to go for austerity now? I think that the, the rationale is prioritize stability over anything else. So it's not an issue of the Russian government not having enough money. Um, public debt is incredibly low. It's below 20%. Um, so the Ministry of Finance has plenty of capacity to increase borrowing in order to finance more social programs. Um, the National Welfare Fund, which many people call Russia's rainy day fund, has plenty of money. Um, it's been hovering at about 11% of GDP since the start of the pandemic. It really has not declined. And so the argument is that a lot of independent economists have been making is that, you know, this is a rainy day fund. The rainy day has come. Now is the time to spend it. Um, and every now and then there are these calls to raise the budget cutoff price and the, the mechanism by which the money either goes into the national welfare fund or goes into the federal budget. Um, and the government has been adamant that they're not going to do that. And so I think that here, the only possible explanation is that, that they're prioritizing stability of government finances and they're, they're betting that declining living standards in the population is not going to cause enough of a headache that they, you know, seriously act on it and make sure more individuals are getting money directly in their pockets at a time when they need it. Well, this is an interesting time to make that bet because, of course, we've uh, been watching the past couple of weeks in Habarovsk, uh, some of the biggest protests outside of uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg uh, in the entirety of, of the Putin era in Russia. Um, what is the risk, do you think, um, that the Habarov protests spin out of control? And is there a chance that uh, the longer that these protests last, the more the Kremlin is forced to rethink its restrictive economic policies? So I think that the Kremlin is betting that these protests die out by the end of the summer. And they have, you know, a pretty, there's, there's, a, there's a legitimate rationale for believing that, which is that over the past few summers, there have been large protest waves. Um, so last summer, for instance, there was there were really large protests in Moscow um, after a bunch of opposition candidates for the Moscow City Council were unable to get their names on the ballots because their signatures were rejected. Um, so there was, you know, that was a really big story last summer. Um, and yet by September, those protests had largely died out. Um, the summer before that, there was there were protests over pension reform, um, and again. By the end of the summer, eventually, you know, people went back to their normal lives. And I think there's, there's only so much you can protest over something that's not really going to change. Um, 
so I think that the Kremlin is kind of seeing this as a nuisance in the Far East that will get taken care of. And they might make some concessions. They might give some more money to the Far East, but um, it doesn't seem like that's going to appease the protesters' demands. Um, and appeasing the protesters' demands does not seem to be the Kremlin's strategy um, or priority. So you can, you can see that in terms of um, who they chose to replace Fergal with, the, the governor that was arrested. They chose someone who was not from the region, um, but was from the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia as well, the LG LGPR, which was Fergal's party. Um, so clearly here, they made a calculus that it was more important to maintain good relations with the LGPR or make amends over the arrest of Fergal and keep the systemic opposition intact, um, that that was more important than than appeasing protesters and trying to, to give them something that would you know, satisfy their demands and put an end to this protest movement. Um, and so I think that in terms of their economic strategy, um, you know, the Kremlin recognizes that, that matters of you know, cutting government spending, and, you know, setting the budget mechanism for the National Welfare Fund, that these are fairly obscure issues for the population. Um, so what people notice is when living standards decline, they're taking home less money, um, they're unable to purchase things that they, that they need or that they previously were able to purchase. Um, but COVID provides a, an excuse for the Russian leadership here. Um, they could make the argument that in 2020, living standards fell, but it wasn't due to poor leadership. It was due to a global pandemic. Um, and if you just look at, for instance, the United States, where GDP in the second quarter of 2020 fell by 33% and unemployment continues to rise really dramatically, then, you know, it sort of gives the Russian leadership an out to say, you know, this wasn't, there's, there's nothing we could do about this. This was an external factor. And unfortunately, that's just what happens during a pandemic. So I think that they're, they're betting on making that argument and having the, the protest movement sort of die out and these nitty gritty decisions about budget policy, they've decided they can, you know, that doesn't meaningfully affect people's lives. I guess that strategy has worked for the past decade. Uh, blame outsiders and say it wouldn't be any better if you changed tax. So we'll see if this uh, continues to work in Habarovsk and elsewhere. Uh, thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Chris.